Whoso offereth praise, glorify me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Amen. I am honored to be worshiping with you this morning, and Sheila and I thank all of you for your gracious hospitality. To my mind, there are very few more important occasions in the life of any church than to acknowledge and celebrate those who have gone before us. I cannot imagine what courage it took to establish this church. Now, I'm from the mountains of Western North Carolina, and so I'm used to kind of sparse areas. But I looked around at all the fields and everything yesterday as Kirk was showing us around, and I thought that, you know, over 315 years ago, there weren't even as many people. The area was not as rich. And it was debatable whether even being a Presbyterian was legal. Yet Francis McKimmy not only had faith in our Lord to commit to build a place for worship, and not more than one, he wanted the gospel to be lived and proclaimed in this place. That's what this building represents. And you have justified Francis McKimmy's faith. So I thank you all again for including me in this celebration. Now, when Kirk called me a couple weeks ago to ask if I could be here, I was excited. And I discovered that Francis McKimmy, although he is so influential in Presbyterian life and American history, he's not a well-known historical figure. And I think that's a shame because he was the first Presbyterian minister in North America. He founded at least seven churches between 1683 and 1705. He was instrumental in establishing the first Presbytery in 1706 and his defense before the governor of New York of his right to preach informs our ideas concerning religious liberty. But again, we really don't know that much about Francis McKemmy because he left a written record. Just one sermon, which we'll talk about today, four pamphlets and seven letters. That's it. Now, many historians bemoan this lack of a written record, but I know the reason why. He was too busy being a pastor to sit down and write a bunch of books. He was also a businessman. He needed to make a living. Now, we can only suspect that McKemmy was born in County Donegal, Ulster, about the year 1658, two years before the restoration of the monarchy and the reestablishment of the Anglican Church. Records just did not survive the violence and chaos of that time. We do know he rolled in the University of Glasgow in February 1676. He had to leave Ireland for a higher education because Trinity College Dublin was closed to dissenters. And he came to America because there were no Presbyterian ministers here. In December of 1680, Colonel William Stevens, who's buried 
by this very church, had established a large plantation on the Pocomoke 15 years earlier, and he wrote to the Presbytery of Lagan in Ulster asking the Presbytery to send a minister to the colony. Now, although Stevens was an Anglican, most of the people on his plantation were Presbyterian, and he wanted to provide for, those, for their spiritual welfare. And besides, as we all know, Presbyterians who are dissatisfied, you don't want them hanging around. <laughs> so Stevens was playing it smart. And it appears that McKemmy was ordained in 1682, preached for a while in Ulster, and then arrived in America in 1683. Now, 1683 in church history is important because at this time, it was illegal to be a Protestant in France. So you have the Restoration, you have the Edict of Nancy would be out, uh, revoked two years later. It was a tough time to be a Presbyterian. And here's McKimmy coming to Maryland. Now in our time, the typical minister is called to a church and stays there for the duration of the call, but McKimmy saw himself differently. He never saw himself as pastoring in a specific parish, although as we all know, this was, church was his favorite child. He saw a broader horizon. He traveled to New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, besides Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, Barbados, and Pennsylvania. And although it's clear he received occasional gifts from churches, he never had a regular salary. He supported himself and his family through his own business interests. And there is no doubt that he was well known and trusted. In the spring of 1706, McKemmy called six other ministers together to form the first presbytery, which elected him as the first moderator. Now, after a called meeting of the presbytery in Philadelphia in 1706, McKimmy went to Boston accompanied by John Hampton, who was a colleague. And their purpose in going to New England was to talk to other churches and draw them into the newly formed presbytery so Presbyterians would have a structured voice. We know that he preached at least twice on this trip, once in New Jersey and once in Boston. On their way home, McKimmy and Hampton stopped in New York City, McKimmy later wrote. They only intended to visit their friends and to pay our respects to the governor. And this is where the trouble began. Both McKimmy and Hampton apparently had dinner with the governor, who was Lord Cornberry, right after they arrived in the city. And by all accounts, really the only one we have is in McKinney's own hand, but by all accounts, the meal was pleasant enough. And the issue of preaching in New York or anywhere else was never raised. It appears, however, and I, being a natural cynic, thinks that this is just a little bit too convenient. It appears, however, that some Presbyterians asked McKimmy to preach and he accepted without hesitation. 
Lord Cornberry heard of this invitation and immediately prohibited McKimmy from preaching in church because McKimmy was not licensed by Cornberry. McKimmy was not intimidated, however. Conveniently, a Presbyterian offered the use of his house for worship, and on January 19, 1706, McKimmy preached a conversation on Psalm 5023 entitled, A Good Conversation. Now, let's be clear. McKimmy was no fool. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was in a private house, as he so clearly states, not a church. And he also makes sure to put in his writings that he kept the doors open. So anyone could come in and he could not be accused of meeting in private. And the fact is, he could have avoided New York altogether. You know, I-95 was just starting to be built then, so he could have just gone around the state roads or whatever. He could have taken a ferry. He could have done everything. He knew that Cornberry had already closed Quaker meeting houses and forced Anglican pastors on several New York counties. And I think deep down inside, McKinney, uh, McKinney was spoiling for a holy fight. He wanted to bring the issue of toleration to a head. So he preached his sermon. The governor proclaimed that McKimmy was a disturber of governments who spread pernicious doctrines and principles. The governor had McKimmy and Hampton arrested for preaching without a license, and they were held for 46 days. Now, the governor wanted them held in prison, but the sheriff who arrested them thought this was a little bit too much, so they spent 46 days in the sheriff's house. <laughs> and there's an undercurrent here because Cornberry was notoriously incompetent, corrupt, and arrogant. And his administration, his lieutenants, immediately understood that if he had just picked a fight, he wasn't going to win. The sheriff refused to take McKimming and Hampton to prison. And it soon became clear that everyone hoped that McKimmy would say, ah, don't worry about it, I'm just going to go home to Maryland and we're going to let the whole matter quietly die. But we all know Presbyterians don't give up so easily. McKimmy insisted, he insisted on a trial. And at this trial, although McKimmy had his own lawyers, he participated in his own defense. When the governor tried to examine and cross-examine McKimmy, he would answer quickly. And it is this trial, and Francis McKimmy's later described as insolent answer, answers to the governor of New York that set the foundations and our attitudes toward religious liberty. McKimmy began by proclaiming that he was licensed to preach by the governor of Barbados, and this license was accepted in all the other colonies. Thus, Lord Governor, are you not 
in Her Most Britannic Majesty's Dominions. And you can see in the written record, Cornbera going, uh-oh. He was accusing of Cornberry exceeding his authority by trying to de suppress dissenting preachers. And there's a lot at stake here. McKimmy didn't know it at the time, but Queen Anne had sent express instructions that Cornberry was not to harass or otherwise impede those who had been licensed by the Church of Scotland. Oops. Also, there was the 1689 Act of Toleration, which specifically said Presbyterians were to be tolerated. Now, whether we're tolerated today or not, we don't have to talk about that now. So McKemmy was immediately found innocent of all charges, and Cornberry really kind of quickly was recalled to London and never heard from again. And just to make sure that the inhabitants of British North America knew their rights, one year later in 1707, he published his sermon entitled A Good Conversation, and then the second part of this pamphlet was an account of his trial, and it was a bestseller. And I would argue that McKemmy's sermon still speaks to us after 315 years, and indeed it is an ongoing conversation. But I have to tell you, I'm not sure that it's a conversation we want to have. Now, I taught history at Union Seminary in Charlotte for 15 years. I love history. I taught civics for four years in Central High School of Lindenburg County in Virginia. And I can tell you, we hate history. We just don't like it. What do we like? We like whatever is new. Oh, man. Who cares what that used car sounds like as long as it's shiny? We like whatever looks good, goes fast. What's the worst thing you can call someone in today's world? Old-fashioned. You can start a fight with that. We always talk about breaking tradition, or we want to push the envelope. Nobody wants to be conventional. And we are so ashamed by parts of our past that we just want to forget the whole thing. We want to wake up and say, okay, today is a new day. Nothing happened yesterday. We want a bright future. Joke's on us. So what we're doing here today then is vital for followers of Jesus Christ. For us, we're the disciples of today and as citizens of the United States. Of the United States. If the past is the crucible which has formed who we are now, we need that conversation with Francis McKimmy because silence is no teacher. Now, a good conversation is the earliest published Presbyterian sermon in colonial America. And I have to tell you honestly, I would rather have a best-selling sermon than be arrested, but McKimmy did both. But I also have to tell you that it is 
long. And when I say long, I mean long. It is ponderous. It is pedantic. pedantic. It is, I mean, it, to read McKinney's sermon is to follow a lot of rabbit holes. It's a lot to get through. It can be confusing. And there's a subtle switch in this sermon. Now, the conversation spoken of by McKemmy is an older English word for conduct or manner of life. But about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, he slyly switches to the more conventional meaning. Now, in good Presbyterian style, McKemmy begins his sermon by stating that a well-ordered life and conversation begins with the Ten Commandments. And added to the Ten Commandments are the gospel precept. According to McKemmy, every soul, in order to have a conscience, must be taught and then live a life defined by scriptural morality. Human beings, McKemmy argues, learn this morality from the church. Just as a magistrate promulgates laws, so McKimmy makes known God's laws. And this is a vitally important point for us. It challenges our assumptions in the way we think. Just a generation before McKimmy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued that human beings in their natural state were basically good but that their natural innocence had been corrupted by the evils of society. And this is basically the foundation of how we view our world today. That, you know, people living in a state of nature, oh, everything's wonderful. They have broadband and cable and everything else. And here is a Presbyterian minister arguing that the Enlightenment of some ideal, free, unrestricted society is absolutely wrong. McKemmy points out that all societies are ordered in one way or another. We may not like how some people live, but every society has an order to their civil life. Every society. Whatever the culture, there's always order. So the question is, the question that faces each and every one of us, it's not that our lives are ordered, but what will that order be? For Francis McKimmy, there can only be one answer. A well-ordered life in conversation can only rest in God's word and ways. It's an argument that should capture our attention. The French Revolution enthroned secularism and ended up with the terror. Vladimir Lenin constructed a purely economic morality from Karl Marx, only to have Stalin kill 30 million in the 1930s, and Mao Zedong starve 50 million in the 1950s. In every instance, whether the state or class or a group of people have deified themselves, a holocaust has been the result. And against all these philosophies and political structures that uphold human beings as the final arbiter of right and wrong, McKemmy 
stands in his pulpit and argues that a well-ordered life and conversation must be based on our understanding of God's word and indeed is the only sure check on tyranny. It is the church who reminds the magistrate that since no human being knows the mind of God, no magistrate who is human can claim to dictate doctrine and constrain conscience. But that conscience must be informed by the Lord. No magistrate can suppress the speech that allows for spreading teachings that engender a well-ordered life and congregation. Francis McAmey, as the scholar Andrew McGinnis has pointed out, came to fear what he called the ruining singularity of Americans. McKimmy traveled the length and breadth of North America. He saw colonial settlers living unconnected independent lives and religious teachers who separated themselves from the traditional teaching Christians and doctrine, Christian teachings and doctrines. Without a connected and interdependent community, humanity, he argued, would perish in chaos and violence subject to petty dictators endlessly fighting for nothing but their pride. McKimmy, he pleaded, he pleaded with the colonists to put on a public spirit combined with harmonious and united councils, avoiding partiality and waiving, excuse me, self-interest. He called on churches to conquer ignorance for if a community did not train its own children in its own faith, someone else would. McKimmy witnessed the beginnings of that rugged American individualism that we so prize today, and he saw nothing but destruction. Now, I want to be clear about this. McKimmy is not advocating what we call social control as we see in China today and all over the world. Rather, he's arguing, an isolated life is one without healthy connections or accountability. An isolated life is thoughtless, unchallenged, and self-satisfied in what it believes. As modern Americans, we say we value our autonomy. McKimmy calls us to value right relationships. McKimmy accused Lord Cornberry of trying to isolate the church in New York so the government could control it. That's what dictators do. We see it all over the world today. It's a story as ancient as the Old Testament. So we have a right, in fact, even a duty to ask, what does Francis McKimmy have to say to us? We do not confront governors who restrict ministers. I'm not sure they care. We live in a country that does not persecute religious opinion, nor do we disband churches. I would argue that our challenge is more subtle. Look at our country today. We are connected with high-speed internet, I mean, except for where you and I live. But we're also the most isolated. 
How many mass shootings and murders are carried out by so-called loners? How many young men join gangs because they just, they just want to belong to something? McKimmy reminds us that we do not survive in isolation, but only with a relational, civic, and religious life. The average teenager spends 7.4 hours on their phones and only 69 minutes interacting with their parents. Could it be that Kim Kardashian is raising our children? Uh, that should frighten us. <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube all have influencers. What is the influence they are peddling? The kids of my youth group Spruce Pine, they knew all the latest songs. But when I wanted them to recite the 23rd Psalm, you'd think I was slaughtering the innocents. <laughs> the American individualism that we prize so much is leaving us vulnerable to self-destruction under the guise of freedom. Listen to McKemmy again, brothers and sisters. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want. That's not freedom. That freedom is the deification of self. It is bullying, violence, and ignorance. McKemmy saw that the only way we can be free is to have a conversation with the past that only the church can connect with the future. We need that conversation. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a child of the 60s. And our inheritance from the 1960s is one of doubting institutions. Yet McKinney warns us, if we dismiss the institution of the church, we have no conversation with the past, nor with the future. There's no vocabulary. There's just silence. And if we in the church stand silent as our culture belittles our faith, we are doomed to live that isolated, desperate life that McKemmy saw as he traveled the length and breadth of the new colony. If we don't have that conversation, we have no hope of influencing the future. So I congratulate Rehoboth Presbyterian Church today on your 315th anniversary. But behind all the congratulations and the good feelings, I urge you to remember that McKinney comes to us with a word and perhaps a challenge. Do not let the individualist tendencies of our culture smother the well-ordered life that the Lord wants for us. Do not let it stop the conversation with generations to come. Amen.